wrapping up our sermon series, Making Sense of the Bible. It's based on a book by Adam Hamilton of the same title. And we're talking about uh, the Bible and sexuality primarily. But with that, we're also touching a bit on the book of Revelation, on the end times, and the role of women, a little more so the role of women, the rights and role of women in the Bible. And if we want to be thoughtful, compassionate people who follow Jesus, how do we interpret the Bible? especially when it comes to the rights and the role of women and when it comes to human sexuality. There may be no more important topics that we're facing right now as, as followers of Jesus in 21st century America than these. The revelation thing we're just going to kind of throw in there because it's connected to how we view the Bible. So that's where we're headed today. I invite you to, if you want to grab that Connect card and take notes or some other, you know, take notes in your phone, feel free to pull out your, your phone and take some notes today. I think this is important material. And so let's watch the sermon bumper for the Bible and sexuality. Mark Twain once said, It's not the things in the Bible that I don't understand that really trouble me. It's all the things in the Bible that I do understand. That's what really troubles me. There are a significant number of people who, when they read it, are just troubled by what they find. And the Bible, which was meant to draw people to God, actually becomes a barrier for many people. It's not a lack of faith that leads us to wrestle with the Bible. It's because we have faith that when we find something that seems inconsistent with the character of God, that we wrestle with that. I hope when people are done reading this book that they have an appreciation for the historical context, the culture of Scripture, how the Bible was put together, uh, who wrote it, why they wrote it, and, and then uh, how to make sense of its troubling passages so that they can read the Bible and they can hear God speaking through it. So that's where we're headed today. And I just want to make a little disclaimer. If you see a pained expression on my face... Like I'm just hurting. Uh, that's because I've moved the past couple of days to a new house. And uh, some, some people here uh, helped us out. Um, my wife, Hannah, and I, we moved just a few miles away to a new place. We've been in our, our old place for eight years. And let me tell you something. Over eight years, my furniture got heavier. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? And I'm just like, oh, I'm just aching. And uh, this morning, it was just tough to roll out of bed, but appreciate the help for those of you who helped us out. We're in our new place here, just, you know, just a few miles away from here, but if I look like I'm in pain, it's because I am. Be, rest assured, it's because I am. So again, this is the last week of our series, Making Sense of the Bible, and during this series, I suggested that thinking, compassionate people can take the Bible seriously. Now, in 21st century America... Let's acknowledge that there are a lot of people who might find that statement laughable. Let's just be honest. In the culture wars that we live in, in the political climate that we live in, the roles that Christians are playing in that, or, or a type of Christians are playing in that, there are uh, visible Christians in the media who use their voices very loudly to proclaim their beliefs and what they believe the Bible says about a whole range of issues, including the issues that we're talking about today. And there are probably, well, not probably, let's be honest, there are a growing number of people in our society who hear the loudest voices who claim to be Christian in the media and in churches and maybe their friends at work, and they think there's no way that I could take the Bible seriously. Now, I'm suggesting, and Adam, Adam is suggesting, that if we interpret the Bible in the light of its historical context, that interpreted well, Thinking, compassionate people can take the Bible seriously. That's really been the theme of this series. And so we've touched on topics like the Bible and science and the Bible and violence. Why does God seem so violent 
in, uh, in, in certain parts of the Bible. Um, and, you know, uh, how do you interpret the Bible in general? Are there, are there ground rules for interpreting the Bible? And then today, you know, there are commands in the New Testament about women keeping silent in church. We don't practice that here. But, but the Bible says that in a couple of places. And then there are verses about people who are in same-sex relationships. And so what do we do with those verses? And so I'm asking you, uh, regardless of where you stand on these issues, uh, I've said so many times, for those of you who have, have known me for a while and been a, part of, been a part of the church, so many times I've said, I'm okay if you disagree with the pastor. Are you okay if you disagree with the pastor? Many times, people are not okay with that. If the pastor says something and they disagree with it, they, they think they have to leave the church. That there has to be 100% agreement on everything. So you may not agree with me. I, maybe you will, maybe you won't. But I'm asking you to keep an open mind and that we would be true to our mission statement. That we want to be a community where thinking, compassionate people can find a spiritual home and live a, a Jesus-inspired life. So a couple of weeks ago, I shared a poll from several years ago, it was, a, it was a poll taken by an evangelical research group, uh, organization called the Barna Group. And they surveyed, at that time, 20-somethings who are not a part of any church. And they asked these 20-somethings, what is your perception of Christians? And we shared the data a couple of weeks ago. It won't be on the screen, but just to, just to refresh you, they found that 75% of these non-church-going 20-somethings viewed Christians as too political. 72% said out of touch with reality, and that was connected to science and reason and rational thinking. 85% said that they perceived Christians as hypocritical. And the most often, uh, the most common answer was that they perceived at 91%, they perceived Christians as anti-gay. 91%. How many of us realize it's hard in any poll to get 91% as an answer? That's an extremely high percentage. It, it's hard to find that high of a percentage in any research project that you could engage in. But 91% of non-church-going young people perceived Christians as anti-gay. And of course, that's because of the loudest, most visible Christians they see in the media or in big churches around them or family members or people they work with and what they hear them saying about the Bible. So when 91% have a perception that Christians are anti-gay, perhaps the most important thing we could do as people who want to follow Jesus in the 21st century is to, to interpret the Bible well, to interpret it wisely, to interpret it thoughtfully, to keep an open mind and, and give it our best effort because it's affecting people's lives. And it's, it's affecting our ability even to live out the Great Commission. Even for evangelical Christians who believe that Jesus wants us to share the gospel, it's affecting our ability to do that. So I want to share a couple of words with you as we, as we jump in today. The words are eisegesis and exegesis. Eisegesis versus exegesis. So if you're taking notes, eisegesis means to, when you read the Bible or anything else, read any message at all, eisegesis means 
we read into that text or that message whatever it is we think it means. So eisegesis means reading into the Bible what we think it says. Exegesis, if you see the word ex there, it's Latin for out, like we have exit signs. Exegesis means when we read the Bible or any other message, we want to get meaning out of it. We want to figure out what did it mean originally, what does it mean now, what was the author thinking, and how do we get the meaning out of that text. So eisegesis means to read into the text what we think it means. Exegesis means to get meaning out of the text. In other words, eisegesis, reading into the text, is a lot like assuming. And what does assuming do? You're, you're good church people. You don't want to say that out loud. It won't be on the screen, but I, I'll suggest here's one thing it does. Here's one thing that eisegesis does. When we read the text without context, we automatically read our views into the text, and text minus context equals embarrassing misinterpretation. Reading into the text, assuming that we know what it means. Reading the text without the context. Context means with the text, something that goes along with the text. When we commit eisegesis and read into the Bible what we think it means and we assume, then we're reading the text out of context and it equals embarrassing misinterpretation. So let's jump into Revelation. People who have predicted the end of the world are too many to count. Every few years, it seems like somebody is, is predicting that the world is about to end. And it's incredible because, of course, it doesn't come true. And folks don't learn that lesson. You know, they, so they just do it again. And so every few years, somebody is pre- uh, predicting the end of the world based on what they believe is an interpretation of Revelation, this last book of the Bible. Um, you might wonder why this would even matter to an American. Why would we even touch on this in church? You know, Bible prophecy and... and, and um, you know, different beliefs that, that some Christians have about that, it might be inconsequential to our lives if it didn't affect Middle Eastern foreign policy in the United States. How many of you realize that there is a, a large percentage of American Christians who believe that it doesn't matter what we do in the Middle East, how many wars we have or if there's peace, because Jesus is just going to come back and make it all okay. There are Christians who interpret the, the book of Revelation in a way that affects your life. It affects the way your tax dollars are spent. If you're a parent, it affects whether your children go to war there or not because of their, their way of reading the book of Revelation. There's a particular uh, view of Revelation that was popularized in the, the book series Left Behind. And there's a certain scenario, and it involves the Middle East. And, and so people read the book of Revelation, and I would suggest they commit eisegesis. They, they read an ancient book written 2,000 years ago and, and believe that they are seeing current countries and current political situations or current people. And, of course, one of those is referred to as the Antichrist. And in Revelation chapter 13, we read about this beast whose number is 666. And in every age, there are Christians who believe that some current person that they don't like is the Antichrist. So I just want to read this, this passage and then show what an example of eisegesis looks like. Revelation 13, verse 11. Then I saw a second beast coming out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, but it spoke like a dragon. It exercised all the authority of the first beast on its behalf and made the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast, whose fatal wound had been healed. And it performed great signs, even causing fire to come down from heaven in the 
to the earth in full view of the people because of the signs it was given power to perform on behalf of the first beast. It deceived the inhabitants of the earth. It ordered them to set up an image and honor the beast who was wounded by the sword and yet lived. The second beast was given power to give breath to the image of the first beast so that the image could speak and cause all, uh, cause all those who refused to worship the image to be killed. It also forced all people, great and small, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hands or on their foreheads so that they could not buy or sell unless they had the mark, which is the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the person who has insight calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man. That number is 666. And then there are people who read that and they're like, oh, that's Russia. Okay. Or like, oh, that's Saddam. You, I remember, you know, Saddam Hussein, the first Persian Gulf War. He, he was the Antichrist. Of course, Hitler was the Antichrist in, in World War II. And of, he's an, he is an Antichrist, for sure. But they read whatever current situation we're experiencing politically into the passage. In the Reformation, 500 years ago, Protestants thought the Pope was the Antichrist. There are people a few years ago who said Obama was the Antichrist. And, and so now there's always in every generation this reading into the passage. Whoever it is I don't like, I'm going to read them into this passage, this opaque, mysterious, I mean, we've got dragons, you know, in here with this opaque passage. I'm going to read into this whatever I think it means. And then there's always some kind of, you know, finagling with the number 666 to try to come up with a person's name or, and figure out who it is and... This has to be my favorite bumper sticker of all time. Check it out. 667, the neighbor of the beast. In the hierarchy of bumper stickers, this sits atop, I think, alone at the top of the pack. There is always this tendency when we read something to read into it what we think it means. But then there are a growing number of Christians who say, I, I don't think that word means what you think it means. And so, of course, Revelation has to be understood in its historical context. So it's a book written 2,000 years ago. It was actually based on seven letters written to current churches in that area, what is now Turkey. And it was called Asia Minor at that time. And these, these letters were written to persecuted followers of Jesus in the Roman Empire. And it was meant to encourage them in their situation, to encourage them in their time. And so, while a lot of people just read the book of Revelation about some future event out there somewhere, like in the Left Behind series, it doesn't really make sense that the author of Revelation would send seven letters to current churches in that time, and, and, and they're suffering under persecution in the Roman Empire, and say, oh, I just want to write you a letter, but this has nothing to do with you. It would be like 2,000 years from now, and I got in a country named Russia. That will, it just doesn't make sense that that would be why the author would, would write the letter. What's, what most Bible scholars think is it was written sometime in the 90s during the reign of the Emperor Domitian, who persecuted Christians. And it was meant to encourage them at that time, and 666 might even refer to the Roman Emperor Nero, who lived about 30 years before, and had killed Peter and Paul, and, and it was kind of code, subversive literature, to say Domitian is kind of like Nero. Uh, 666 can add up numer in numerology to Nero, and, and it was meant to be an encouragement to those Christians then. And then for us, we can say, well, there are always antichrists in the world. There are always people who are committing acts of injustice. And whenever we see that, revelation is relevant to our lives. It's relevant to our situation. 
And so maybe it's not just about some future event out there somewhere that in every generation we just have to read one, one meaning into it and, and assume that we know what it means. Perhaps Revelation is relevant for all time. And so that's just one example. We're not going to spend much time on that, but one example of how Christians so often commit eisegesis and read into it. Oh, that's Russia. That's Saddam. That's, and, and just assume they think uh, they know what it means versus interpreting it into its or, uh, historical context. All right, let's move on. I want to spend the, uh, the bulk of our time now on the next two subjects. First, I want to talk about uh, the Bible and the role of women and the rights of women. Now, we are living in a time in our country where it seems like every, every belief, every relationship, every opinion, every view is informed by this uh, incredibly divided culture war. Do you know what I'm talking about? And, and you go to dinner with the family, Thanksgiving's coming up soon, and you know that if you mention this one name or this one word, you, you might as well have just stayed home. For, for dinner, because it's going to get weird, because we just live in this incredibly divided time. When so many Americans, when they, when they hear any issue, their approach is, okay, what does my political tribe think about that issue? Not what is true, or what does the evidence say, or what is the wisdom of the ages pertaining to this issue, but what does my favorite cable news channel say about this issue? What do my friends at work say about this? What does my, it seems like we're just divided into tribes. And that there's something about this tribalism that, that, that pushes some button deep in our brains from our history. And it just, it just seems so safe and cozy to not have to think. And to just be divided into tribalism. And of course, when we talk about the rights and the role of women, it's one of those issues. Where it's not what does the evidence say or or what, have, what has my experience been with, with women in my life and, and around the world? But what does my tribe think about this issue? And I invite you to think outside of your tribe. To think with an open mind. So where we are in the, in the United States right now is 50% of the churches in the United States will not permit a woman to speak, to give a sermon like I'm giving. Or permit a woman to serve on the church board. Half of all the churches in the United States, a woman cannot serve in leadership. Some of you have heard me talk about my grandmother. And, and my grandma is probably the number one influence on my life. I lived with my, my grandparents and my mom until I was six back in Ohio. And my grandma was what's called a, a licensed lay speaker in the United Methodist Church. What that meant was when the pastor was gone, she would give the sermon. And she would teach adult Bible classes, and there were men and women in her classes. And, and I would go to church with her, and I would just kind of sit in the back and, and um, play with, like, a gum wrapper, which was, like, the equivalent of an iPad at that time. You know, like, we had gum wrappers to play with that we found under the seat or something. And I remember just watching my grandma teach and thinking about how proud I was of her. Because she loved me like nobody else, and she walked the talk, and... and she was a, a, a gentle person. She was a strong leader, but she was compassionate. And I would watch her teach out of this, out of these you know, Bible study materials. And I just remember thinking how proud I was of her. And then as I got a little bit older, I realized you know, when I was a teenager that there are a lot of churches in America where she couldn't do that. She wasn't permitted to teach like that. I had some uncles who were a part of these you know, high-octane Baptist churches. And... Uh, I realized that 
my uncles would actually say to my grandma every once in a while, at family events, of course, family dinners, you know, the Bible says that, that women should remain silent in church. You, you shouldn't be teaching that. Elizabeth was her name. Elizabeth, you shouldn't be teaching men in the church. You should only teach women or kids. You, you, the, the Bible hasn't given you authority to teach men. That's something that only men should do. Only men should have authority to teach men. And women should remain silent in the church. And I remember, remember thinking that or hearing that and, and just how hurt I was for her that she was hearing messages like that. And you know, but how proud I was of her and just all the images I saw of her teaching Bible classes and then that somebody would say that. It just didn't make any sense to me. Like, why would somebody say that? What's the reason? Why would they say that? Because they found that in the Bible. There are verses, a couple of them, not many, but a couple in the New Testament where it says women should remain silent and I do not permit a woman to speak or have authority over a man. And, and so they're, they're good thinking, compassionate Christians. And they hear me make a statement like, yeah, thinking, compassionate people can take the Bible seriously. And they're like, you sure about that, pal? Because the Bible says some things that are just completely out of step with our understanding of, of, of life and people in the 21st century. I have a photo for This is in New York in 1917. And this was a march for women's suffrage uh, when, before, women in this country had the right to vote. And there was a massive movement where women rose up and said, you know, we should have a voice in what happens in our country. And this past June, actually, was the 100-year anniversary of Congress passing the 19th Amendment, granting women the right to vote. That was in... uh, 2019, my grandma was born in, or, or, sorry, 1919, my grandma was born in 1920. She was born a year later after women gained the right to vote. And that was a contentious issue, and there were Christians on both sides. There were Christians who said, there's no way that women should, should be able to vote because Adam is given authority over Eve in the garden. And, and so women shouldn't have the right to vote. And there were other Christians who cited some other Bible passages about the equality of women. And they used the Bible to say, no, women should have the right to vote. And so faith was used to argue both sides of the issue. Why, why is that? Because the Bible says two different things about the rights and the role of women. So in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul writes that a woman can speak in church as long as she has a head covering on. As long as she's wearing a hat, a woman can speak in church. A couple of page, well, one page later, actually, in 1 Corinthians 14, women, are, women are, uh, are told to remain silent. So in 1 Corinthians 11, she can speak in church if she has a hat on. In 1 Corinthians 14, they can't speak at all. Well, which one is it? I mean, we're talking about flipping one page. And by the way, in 1 Corinthians 11... The reason, and, and Paul says, there's almost the entire chapter, uh, Paul devotes six, uh, makes six arguments for why women should wear a head covering in church. Are you aware of this? Now, why did we not pass out her, uh, hats today to all the ladies in the congregation? Now, 1 Corinthians 11 clearly says that. I guarantee you could go to any megachurch in this area that would say, no, we follow every word of the Bible, we don't interpret it, we just teach the Bible. Whatever the Bible says, we just do it. We're a Bible-believing church. And the women are not wearing hats in that congregation. Now, why is that? 
I'm sure part of the reason is, is because the wives would be like, uh, you better not, I'm not going to be wearing a hat uh, to show your, right, as they should, I, I think. But when we read 1 Corinthians 11, we're, we're stepping into a world where a woman having her head, unco- a married woman having her head uncovered is a sign that she might be available. And we know that because of context. We know that was, that was a custom of the time. And so if a, if a single woman had her hair uncovered, that might not be such a bad thing. It could also be a sign that, that she was a prostitute. But a, a married woman covered her hair in an assembly as a sign that she was taken. Is that an expectation for us today? I don't think so. I think the culture has changed. Wedding rings, you could say. I mean, they kind of function like that, correct? But head coverings in church? No. We look at that passage as something that was culturally informed. Why? Because we understood the context. Instead of committing eisegesis and saying, well, Paul says women should wear head coverings, we, we want to do exegesis and get meaning out and interpret the Bible in the light of its historical context. And then besides that, of course, you flip one page and it says two different things. And there are some theories about that too. 1 Corinthians 11 is similar to another passage in Timothy. reads very much the same. This is a quick aside. If you were to read 1 Corinthians 14 and take those couple of verses out, this is challenging for some people to hear. If you were to read 1 Corinthians 14 and take those two verses out, 1 Corinthians 14 would continue to flow logically, just like you would expect. There's a theory that it was actually inserted at a later date. The same verbiage in Timothy was put into 1 Corinthians 14. Why, why would it say two contradictory things? You flip one page and it says something different. That's a challenge to a lot of people, but I think it's something that you know, thinking people deserve to know. There are theories about why the Bible says what it says and how we got it. But when I first moved here eight years ago, um, I volunteered in the, the centennial celebration for the city of Chandler. And, uh, and uh, met a lady there, she's probably about 60 years old, and she was volunteering as well. And, and we're just making small talk, and, and she asked, uh, what brought me to Chandler? I'm, well, I'm here, to, I'm a pastor. And, and um, when I said I was a pastor, she kind of, which is the typical response. When I, you know, I always kind of dread when people ask, so what do you do? I'm like, oh, it's like I'm about to like, drop bad news on them or something. Like, it's going to so, be so awkward now. And so I'm a pastor, and she was kind of taken aback a little bit. And we talked, and, and she said, you know, I grew up in church and had a good experience, really, until I got older. And she shared with me that she was an administrator uh, in a local company. She has a, a doctorate in leadership. And she said, I, I pursued my career, and, and, and then I got to the place where I realized, wait a second, I'm, a, I'm an administrator in my company. I'm, I'm making decisions. I'm calling shots. I'm, I'm leading. There are lots of men under my authority. But when I go to church, I'm like this second-class citizen. And when I heard her say that, it just it broke my heart. Because I thought, you know, there, not every church is like that, but that was her experience. And you have this high-powered woman in leadership who's, who lives a great life and exercises her gifts and her calling in life, and then she steps into a, a church situation. And it's like she's stepping back 2,000 years to the ancient Middle East. And, and, and where there's a set of social values that does not match her experience, her gifts, her calling, her job. And she said, I just couldn't do it anymore. 
And so interpreting the Bible well, doing good exegesis is extremely important when it comes to the rights and the role of women. That's why we don't pass out hats here at the well. And we believe that women can take a leadership role here um, because we want to interpret the Bible wisely. The Apostle Paul actually lists several women in his letters who he viewed as leaders, and he thanked them as leaders. And there are names like Lydia, Junia, Priscilla, Phoebe. He intentionally lists these women as leaders in the church. There was a couple named Priscilla and Aquila. And Priscilla is the female name. Aquila is her husband. She's always mentioned first in the New Testament, which is kind of against convention, right? Usually, like you mentioned, the guy's name first. And so you'd have to think, 2,000 years ago, in the, in the ancient Middle East and in, in, uh, in, in uh, Greece and Macedonia, why would you mention the woman first? I think it probably says something about her standing and her leadership. So Paul lists these names of women who helped to build the early church, and they've passed down their legacy to us today. All right, and then let's finally move on uh, to the question of the Bible and sexuality. When I planted the first church we planted out here seven, eight years ago, this was the most controversial issue in America by far. And it was the hot-button issue at the time. As we were starting the church, like literally just about everybody that we talked to asked the question, are you going to let same-sex couples participate in the church? How do you feel about, how do you feel about that? And, and uh, I gave them an answer. And uh, we launched the church. And, and, and the core of our church understood how we felt about that issue. But there were a lot of people who came from kind of the nearby megachurches, and they were looking for a smaller version of the church down the street. So, I mean, if you're, if you're a pastor listening to this podcast anywhere in America, if you want to plant a smaller version of the church down the street, I mean, it's going to be successful because a lot of people came. They were, they were looking for a smaller version of that, and they kind of assumed that's what we were doing. And about six months in, in the most milquetoast Clark Kent tape around my glasses way possible, I explain what, what, this is why we welcome everybody. And over the next month, a third of the congregation left. I had a, about uh, 20 meetings over the next month. And most of those meetings just went like this. Hey, did you mean what you said in your sermon? I was like, yeah. Like, okay, well, God bless you. And they bowed out. Because they, they believed that the Bible speaks clearly on this issue. That's all they had ever heard. Of course, they've been involved in, in uh, the same culture that I live in, where there has been this culture war for the past 45, 50 years in the United States, and they're told that the Bible says this, and this is why we vote a certain way, and it's been a, it's been a useful political tool to fire people up and, and, and turn out the vote. And so there are obviously strong feelings about this issue. It's still one of the most uh, hot-button issues in the country. I would say that our culture has moved on quite a bit over the past seven years, but it still is a hot-button issue. And we live in an area that's one of the most conservative places in the United States. I don't know if you know this, if you remember, um, just a few years ago, the, the state senator here where we are right now voted, um, or no, he introduced a bill, sorry, that businesses could deny service to gay people just a few years ago. And he was reelected in 2014. And that's here, where we are, the state senator. That made national news, that he, he wanted 
businesses to be able to deny service to people who are gay. Of course, the Supreme Court is now preparing to take up arguments about cases um, involving non-discrimination. Because right now, in many states, it, it is legal to fire somebody for being gay. And the Supreme Court is about to take on that question, and so this particular issue is going to be front and center again over the next few weeks. So for Christians who love the Bible, and they want to follow Jesus, and they believe that the Bible can be a guide for their life, the Bible seems to speak so plainly on same-sex relationships. And of course, again, they've been a part of the culture war for 40, 50 years, and, and they just assume that, it's, that when they read the words on the page, that they know what those words mean. And it's so easy to read our own views into that text. It's so easy to commit eisegesis. Now, of course, it's said that eisegesis is, you know, when somebody else reads the Bible and I disagree with them. And exegesis is whatever I believe about the Bible. Of course, you know, we all have that tendency. But I would suggest that it's so tempting and so easy to, to commit eisegesis when it comes to the issue of human sexuality. Let's start with this first. The Bible says very little about marriage in general. I don't know if that's a surprise to some or not. There are a lot of sermon series on marriage in the suburbs. There's a reason for that. Uh, it attracts people that churches are trying to reach. But the Bible doesn't really say that much about marriage. And it definitely doesn't say that much about same-sex relationships either. There are six or seven passages in the Bible, 34,000, 35,000 verses in the Bible. Six to seven of those verses touch on what, would, what appears to be same-sex relationships, and they're often called the clobber passages because those, those six or seven verses have been used as a club to beat people over the head who, who are attracted to some one of the same sex and to exclude them. So in the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, same-sex relationships are condemned in the book of Leviticus. A man should not lie with another man. You know, this is sin. And if you read a few verses later, uh, Leviticus also condemns eating shellfish. It condemns trimming the corners of your beard. Uh, it says that uh, if a child disobeys their parents, you can give that child the death penalty. You can execute a child who is disobedient to their parents. There's a law condemning anyone who wears clothing made of two kinds of fabric woven together. So that cotton polyester blend that you're wearing right now that breathes really well, that's condemned in the book of Leviticus. A woman who is not a virgin on her wedding night can be executed, stoned to death, meaning throwing rocks at her until she dies. Anybody want to go back to those laws? If, if we decided that we want to live by those laws, most of us would already be dead. Can I get an amen? Because so many of us have violated, I mean, disobedient. you ever been disobedient to your parents? And so these laws, as difficult as a statement like this is, for so many good church people to hear, when you read the book of Leviticus, and you're, you're reading about shellfish and trimming your beard, these laws are really not helpful for us to understand human sexuality. It's extremely difficult to back up your argument with evidence if you want to use these laws to argue what law should be in the United States or how churches should treat other human beings. When we jump to the New Testament, same-sex relationships are viewed as connected to the worship of other gods. 
And so in Romans 1, the Apostle Paul uh, mentions uh, same-sex relationships, appears to. In 1 Corinthians, uh, he mentions uh, what appears to be same-sex sexual relationship. And uh, for Paul, uh, well, let me back up. Let me, let me ease into it like this. In the culture in which Paul lived, which was the ancient Greco-Roman culture, a common practice was to go to a temple to worship the Greco-Roman gods, and this is completely foreign to us, like carne al pastor would be foreign to somebody who only speaks English. But these temples would be set up, and a form of worship in some of these temples would be to engage in sex acts. And this is where you just lose a lot of Americans because it's completely foreign. But that was a common religious practice in the culture of Paul. Not only that, but it was common, it was common for young men to be a part of that temple, and older men would visit that temple, and their act of worship would be to engage in a sex act with a younger male, this is pederasty. And so one form of Greco-Roman worship, the worship of another god, would be to engage in a sex act with a temple prostitute who may be underage and was likely a slave. Once again, when you talk about the the historical context of the Greco-Roman world, you've lost a pretty good percentage of American Christians. Let's just be honest. Because to some people, that just sounds like fancy book learning. And it, it sounds, it's so, it's so foreign to us, we don't have a hook to hang that on. We don't have anything to compare that to. And so a lot of people, when they don't understand something, they go, oh, that isn't real. There was somebody one time who uh, actually said to me, they didn't, they didn't believe in the, the, the photos that we were receiving from the Hubble telescope. She was like, I can't even get my phone to work right. You expect me to believe that we can get photos of outer space? Somebody said that to me one time. There are people who assume because I don't understand something that it's not real. There there aren't words like homosexual or orientation in the Bible. There was no concept that a person might be born or from an early age be gay. There was no concept of that in the Bible. And so for Paul, if you would say, hey, Paul, same-sex relationships, go. Paul would talk about worshiping Greek and Roman gods. He would talk about temple prostitution. He would talk about underage boys. He would talk about slavery. For Paul, it's one big giant hairball. Paul sees all those things together. Now, this is why I said earlier, you could say, Ryan, I I, I love you, I respect you, and that's one view, but I have a different view. That's fine. I'm okay if you disagree with the pastor. Are you okay if you disagree with the pastor? However, when it comes to a situation like this, interpreting the Bible well deserves our best efforts, our best thoughts, our wisest Bible interpretation. Why? Because it's affecting people's lives. And if we looked at issues where 
evangelical Christians have interpreted the Bible over the past 100 years in, in major cultural, social issues. And we would, we would take note of slavery, of women's suffrage, of science, particularly evolution, of the civil rights movement in the 60s, and for the gay rights movement now. We would see that a large percentage of, of Christians opposed those movements, those social movements, because of their view of the Bible. And they ended up on the wrong side of history. Because they were not willing to interpret the Bible in the light of its historical context. Now, I love people who disagree with me. And if you disagree with me, you're welcome here, like everybody else is. And at the same time, I want to engage in exegesis and not eisegesis. I want to show you a map for those who just find the issue difficult and you think of it just in, in theological terms. You know, how we interpret the Bible. For you, it's, it's kind of like an intellectual, abstract issue. I just want to remind you that there are real-world consequences to what we believe and how we interpret the Bible and what we say. And so, this map here of, of our planet uh, shows by country what the treatment is of people who are LGBTQ or in same-sex relationships. The countries in green are countries that grant rights to people who are gay and believe that people who are gay should be able to live in, in happiness and thrive. And the countries that are in white or gray, they're countries where they don't really grant rights to, to the gay population the same way that the countries in green do. It can be dangerous more dangerous to live in the countries that are gray. The countries in red are countries that will imprison or execute a person who is gay, a couple who, who has a, a same-sex relationship. I just want to ask you a question. What set of countries do you want to live in? We look at the countries in green, like the United States and Canada and Brazil and most of South America, Australia, Western Europe, Countries in red who want to imprison or execute people who are gay, Saudi Arabia, uh, the, the northern part of, of Africa. Um, which countries do you want to live in? Which, which countries are more aligned to your values? Whether you're, whether you're a Christian or not, or no matter how you interpret the Bible, the way we interpret religious literature, and as you look at that map, by the way, much of that map is influenced by religious literature. The way we interpret religious literature affects the daily lives of people. I want to close uh, with a video uh, that was uh, uh, given by, well, a video showed by Adam Hamilton, the author of our, our study, you know, Making Sense of the Bible. And he's a part of the United Methodist Church, and they've been divided on the issue of human sexuality since the 70s. And Adam talked about this in a, in a sermon recently, and, and he showed just a quick two-and-a-half-minute video of a woman in his congregation named Debbie. And this is a video of this mother, Debbie, uh, talking about her son, Brian. And as she talks about her son, I just want you to think about how we interpret the Bible and the words we use and what we believe affects people's everyday lives. So I invite you to watch. This is Debbie speaking about her son, Brian. 
Brian was a really sweet boy, even since childhood, almost an artistic genius. So if you met him, he'd be lighthearted and happy and funny and doing crazy stuff. You know, as a kid, he was a lot more reserved. And then as he became older and older, he became, you know, the kid who'd always jump the fence or always take the dare. Whatever challenge there was, he would take it. Brian underwent a lot of teasing growing up. He um, was sexually assaulted at the school. He had his new car was vandalized with hate written on it. He had notes put on his back at school. A child of a principal said that walking through the hallways with Brian was like walking through hell. But Brian was also a very forgiving person. He'd say they just don't know better. But underneath, you know, he felt everything. Brian did not come out until after high school, and I think a lot of that was protective. It was easier for him as, as he got older. But the struggles never, never ended. Brian completed suicide on November 1st, 2014. The number one rule of Methodism, the, the number one rule is do no harm. Brian harmed himself, but I think that was, I know that was an extension of of the harm put on him. But I think about this number one rule for Methodism, do no harm. And our book of discipline tells us, tells the LBGTQ community, God loves you, but. That but is, but you're not good enough. I did not attend General Conference, but I was aware of the topic and I was aware of the plans. And I couldn't believe this was my church and I couldn't believe that I would attend a church that believed that way. My hope for the church is that we can move beyond this as being a huge issue that doesn't need to exist and that our church would begin to welcome everyone because I believe that God sees inside of all of our hearts. And Brian's heart was so kind and so good. You know, he should be the person allowed to witness to others. And his sexual orientation should have nothing to do with that. I think about this young man going to school and walking through the hallways of his school and getting notes put on his back or getting his car vandalized and to the point of, of taking his own life. And I have to ask myself as a pastor, as somebody who calls himself a Christian, what role does our interpretation of the Bible play in that young man's experience? The messages that most Americans receive from churches, what role do those messages play in his experience of life, his brief experience of life on this earth? What is our responsibility and how we interpret the Bible as, as people who want to be thinking Christians? And so it's because of the way I read the Bible in its historical context, and I realize there's room for disagreement. Like I said, if you disagree with me, then you're welcome here like everybody else is. But because of the way I read the Bible and because of my openness to understanding evidence about what causes us to be the way we are and the experience of, of people in this world. That's why it's important to me to welcome 
LGBTQ folks into full participation to the church. And I wouldn't want to do it any other way. I couldn't, there's no way that I could do that. I couldn't stand before God. I couldn't live with myself as a follower of Jesus Christ and stand before God someday as I believe I will and say that I, I played a role in this young man's experience of life. And there are some people that may just say, well, that's just, you know, it's, you're just being emotional and obviously it is emotional. But it's more than that for me. It's about the Bible. When somebody came to Jesus and they said to Jesus, Jesus, what is the greatest commandment? What is all this about? How do you interpret the scripture and, and what's important and how do we please God and what do we do? Jesus gave this answer. It's from Matthew chapter 22, verses 37 through 40. Jesus said, you want to know what's, what it's all about? How to please God, how to interpret the Bible, what following me is all about? Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your, with all your heart with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and, and greatest commandment. And the second is like it, linked to it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Now, of course, the thoughtful person says, well, what does love mean? How do you, what does it mean to love your neighbor? Well, here's what I believe it means. That we love people enough to think deeply about how we interpret the Bible, that we seek to not commit eisegesis, but to do exegesis. And then when we read words in the Bible and statements, we don't assume that we know what it means, like carnal pastor, but that we seek to discover what was Paul thinking, what was his, what was his viewpoint. We discover that Paul and, and Jesus were actually they were actually advocates for the rights of people in their time, far beyond Greco-Roman culture. They pushed it forward. But then, now when we look back, it doesn't feel that way in the 21st century. It does with Jesus. With Paul, there are some, some statements. But they actually move forward at the time. And then I see the way that people's lives are affected by how we interpret the Bible and what we believe. And I, I look at all those things together, and, and then I come down here. As a thoughtful, compassionate follower of Jesus, how, how do I interpret the Bible on the role of women in, in, in human sexuality? Well, I want to grant people rights. I want to love people. And I think that means like holding controversial views, you know, with an open hand. But at the same time, welcoming and loving. And I want you to be a part of this congregation. And I hope you feel the message when we say welcome home, I hope you feel that. It's true. If you have a loved one who identifies, I, I hope you feel that you're welcome as well uh, because of your love for them. Because we want to be people who interpret the Bible wisely in its context, and we believe that thinking compassionate people can take the Bible seriously.